You're listening to Sports Content Strategy with Mr. Richard Clark. I think people are going to be looking at every organisation, not just sport, to be a caring organisation. That is the, the way forward here. Your corporate and cultural behaviour needs to be attuned to that moving forward. People are genuinely changing their behaviours. And I think at the end of this, we can really hope we are a better society and that we've learned that going through this real hardship, that we have to support each other, we have to help each other, and we do have to be kinder to each other. And I really expect us to be doing that. And I think football will be at the heart of it. In this new world that we're going to enter post-coronavirus, it's a brilliant opportunity for people to reset, get their values right, make sure they're at the heart of the community, that they're acting properly, and that people are truly living the values that they are setting themselves from the outset. Hi there, welcome to this episode of Sports Content Strategy. My guest this time is Adrian Bevington. He's had a long career in communications and also management within football organisations such as England, Wales, Middlesbrough and many others. We're talking about crisis communications and we have a particular crisis at the moment with coronavirus. Adrian tells me how he'd handle it and the general principles around communication practices at times such as these. If you don't know me, my name is Richard Clark. I'm a sports digital consultant working with leagues, organisations, athletes in terms of digital content, social media strategy, etc, etc. Go to my website, Mr. Richard Clark, for further details. Anyway, without further ado, let's talk communications and football in difficult times with this man. Adrian Bevington, formerly English FA Director of Communications and Managing Director of the Club England Structure. Football consultant, worked with a number of different clubs, organisations, commercial businesses in different capacities, leadership roles, and most recently Middlesbrough Football Club, which I left at the end of the year where I was a member of the executive team, uh, head of recruitment operations, and currently uh, doing a little bit of consulting again. Adrian, thanks for your time. And it is a very unusual time at the moment, what with... Uh, the coronavirus crisis that we have at the moment. If you're advising a club, an organisation, what principles would you be, be bringing into your communication strategy? Well, I think the most important thing is that you are, before you actually communicate externally, you are understanding the guidance that you're receiving from the authorities, primarily government and then the footballing bodies. That's where you take your lead from. Once you have the decisions or the guidance that you have, your communication should be frequent. Initially to your own staff, the most important people, the engine of your machine, and then externally, particularly to your stakeholder, main stakeholder group, your supporters, and then and obviously your commercial partners within that group, etc., etc. Keeping it as simple as possible. I've been really impressed with the way that so many sporting organisations and football clubs have really uh, communicated very well during this period. Clubs that spring out to mind immediately, like I think Brighton have done a very good job. There's been a lot of obvious uh, comms coming out of Brighton. A lot of clubs are doing some wonderful work within the community in England, up in Scotland and across Europe. We've seen it in different types of ways. 
Um, Stevens is a club that's done some really good work that I've noticed of late as well. So I think there's a huge void at the moment that we all recognise, and people are potentially very isolated and lonely. So therefore, the communication from the football club that has such a huge social responsibility in the community. We saw Carlo Ancelotti on the phone to, to supporters uh, of Everton. You know, that contact is crucial at the moment, way beyond just the corporate messaging of communications. What nuances have you seen between the different leagues maybe around Europe, the EPL, the EFL, the leagues around Europe? They've done things slightly differently. So just tell us about the nuances and the strengths and weaknesses in your opinion. Well, in in England, I've been very impressed with the collective approach that's been taken by, you know, the FA with the Premier League, with the EFL, with the LMA, with the PFA, and including the Women's Super League as well within all of this. So I think I think there's been a good collective approach to it. They've had their individual meetings, but there's been collective announcements on the back of it. And I think that they're much stronger and much better to understand when they're coming out as a collective where they can. It's not always possible. You look elsewhere, I think in Germany, you know, there's been a lot of uh, big announcements by individual players or by the clubs insofar as how they are, you know, donating revenue back into the into the game, which has been very strong. Obviously, we had a lot in Italy at the very early stages because just of the way that the, the virus has attacked Italy first and foremost in Europe. Um Theirs was very much, a, you know, a crisis comms approach to things. Very, you know, because they were hit hard quicker than anybody else. There's a good approach in uh, Scotland where they came out, and you know that I remember they were one of the early ones in conjunction with the Welsh and Northern Irish to um, close grassroots football. You know, so that was a very clear decision in that way. So there are so many different elements of this. But I think, I, I think in the main, the communications that I've observed, I think UEFA did a really good job with the way they had their meeting through um, conference calls a few weeks ago, where within an hour, they made a clear decision that had obviously been discussed a lot in advance to tell the world that the Euros have been moved back a year. So strategically, it was a, it was a very clear decision that was communicated very effectively. Some of the statements we've seen so far are kind of effectively holding statements that they're they're stating a position but you know that there's going to be further decisions that are then are going to come forward with regard to what happens to the ongoing league what happens to the league next year when we're going to start again so what are the rights and wrongs of a holding statement i think they're absolutely right to have a holding statement because none of us know at the moment when we are going to be able to play sport again so why would you put yourself into a, a locked prism that you don't need to? I think there's been decisions taken, you know, at the lower steps of our um, semi, you know, semi-pro and below game, and then into grassroots football, where obviously seasons have now been suspended. They've been taken, I think, for health reasons, but also the fact that there's so much administration involved at those levels that, that, that there's just been a view taken that that was the most simplistic approach to doing so at this particular moment. We've got so many commercial variables, we know at the elite professional game, that there's a lot more to be considered financially at that level. So I think they're right, they have been correct to give themselves that time, 
they've they've been careful in the wording of statements to say things like not before a certain date and i think we'll see a bit more of that as we move forward i anticipate uh the efl and the, the premier league having similar announcements as we move forward i think it was one of the board members at southampton talked about the need to get the premier league back so quickly because or relatively quickly in comparison to other entertainments and and things out there because it it was that it it, it is what we talk about it is what we what occupies it what the fabric of the uk existence so has it kind of proved a point to a certain extent the importance of football within our lives i think yes it has but I want to preface that by saying, and I, I think it's important that we all have to say this, Richard, that, you know, what's hammered home to me and a lot of people over these last few weeks is that, yes, football is massively important, sport's so important, but this is something that we've never faced in our lives before. And it is so serious what we're facing. And so many people in our own country, but also globally, are being impacted upon in a way that, you know, it's, a, it's such a harsh, extreme situation, this, that that has to come first and football has to be secondary to it. But on onto football, yes, football is part of our social fabric. You know, we are lost at the moment with a lot of our time because we watch so much of it as fans in this country. It is wall-to-wall wherever we go and we can access it in a way that we couldn't have dreamt of 25 years ago. So football is at the centre of people's lives, so many people's lives in this country, not everybody, but so many. And I think it will give a real good feel factor when it's up and running again. But we have to be sensitive to the fact that that will only come with the guidance that we receive from the government and the and the medical experts. On the assumption that we get up and running again in the next six months, year, whatever it is. Do you think that the perception of many clubs may have changed given the stances that they've taken vis-a-vis community involvement? You talked about Watford, Chelsea, Tranmere are doing some great work. Suddenly they've, they've proved how important they are to the community and that's going to put football clubs such as those, not maybe the biggest clubs, but in an elevated position within their community once we get through this. Well, I think there's two things I'd like to say on that. First of all, football clubs anyway are in an elevated position within their communities. And people look to football clubs to play a role because they're a touch point for people that not many other organisations naturally have. And they take on so much great work in that area. And we always say kind of glibly, oh, a lot of it doesn't get reported. Well, a lot of it does get reported and a lot of it at the moment is being reported, but they're not doing it just for that reason. They're doing it for a good purpose the community support that football does is absolutely fantastic and everybody who's involved in that should be very proud of it. Moving on how we come out of this when we do, I've been speaking to a few different people in recent days and I've thought of this a lot. The attitude of people has been just so uplifting. I think, you know, we've seen these campaigns be kind and things like that. I think we are seeing a greater level of caring than we've ever seen before. People are being helpful they're being more respectful and then you look at you know social media isn't always the way to judge society but you look at twitter which can be a pretty fraught aggressive nasty place at times i'm not seeing any of that at the moment or very little of it 
people are genuinely changing their behaviours. And I think at the end of this, we can really hope that as a society, we are a better society and that we've learned that going through this real hardship, that so many people will, that we have to support each other, we have to help each other, and we do have to be kinder to each other. And I really expect us to be to be doing that. And I think football will be at the heart of it. Is it important to reframe the sport rather than just rebuild what previously existed? Because there were tensions, there were issues, there was money problems, there was issues around football itself. You, you talked about social media and it being a... A, a dangerous place online. Well, football <laughs> helps create that to a certain extent. If we're going to make a better world in which football can exist, we need to build a different different type of football, right? Well, the football that we see on the field at the elite end of the game is as good a quality of football as we've ever seen in our lives. The talent that is there now is absolutely sensational. The speed it's played at, the way it's the way it's watched in the stadiums that are there are better than ever before and the way that we can consume it as broadcasters is better than ever before. So they're all huge, huge positives. Um, insofar as reframing things, I think that's a huge debate for so many people to have and consider. But I would really like to feel that when we do come out of this that all the clubs that are in the EFL and the National League are still there and that we found a way as a football family, we talk about the football family a lot, that through the football family, we all protect everybody. Those clubs that we talk about that being at the heart of the community, having a historical role in our society, who are going through a very difficult time at the moment and will be for much longer financially, we protect them and ensure that we have the structure of our game in this country, which is the envy of so many people around the world, that it's there when we come out of it. I think what you might be talking about is attitude as opposed to framework of the structure. And I think that's back to my point again about it, you know, the caring society, the bigger picture, thinking of others. Sport, football does involve competitiveness, massive rivalries, and we don't want to water those down because they're part of the beauty of what we enjoy, or a lot of us enjoy. But I do think it's about people being just a little bit more sensitive about their language and behaviour once we come out of this. But also the clubs, there can be more collaboration between them. I think you were talking on, on Twitter about uh, the, the, the billboards around the ground and potentially having um, uh, those to be not individually sold, but sold uh, as a as a block, either within the EFL or or, or the Premier League, um, the other side of that is, of course, the big clubs say, "Well, we can make more more money ourselves that way." So, yeah. so, so the the community spirit that comes out of this might be the bigger clubs saying, "Okay, we're going to leave a certain amount of money on the table for the greater good." So, the clubs need to collaborate within themselves and obviously be seen as community assets, as you spoke about. Yeah, and look, we both worked within football clubs and. But my experience is that there is a lot of collegiate thinking. You know, they're not always at daggers drawn with one another. There is a good collective spirit that takes place generally. And I've always enjoyed it, you know, on match days, meeting people from other clubs when I've been in boardrooms representing clubs that I've been working for. 
And there's genuine friendships that exist there, and you do have healthy discussions. Um, the point I was making about the billboards, the, the, the pitch-side advertising, it just seems logical to me. I know that a lot of people have discussed this before. It's not a wholly new idea. But I think at the moment, when you look at those clubs, particularly in League 1 and League 2 and the National League, but if you look from an EFL point of view, League 1 and League 2, they've got to be stronger with an aggregate collective deal than, than trying to sell and spend so much time selling their advertising locally. And then you divvy it up. And if you can bring the championship into it, and yes, there's some there's huge differentials between the top of the championship to the bottom end of League 2. We know that. Um, and running a club in the championship is an expensive business for anyone who's running a club you know the 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 revenue that you generate in the championship is crucial because your overheads are so high we might see a slight downturn in overheads moving forward by the way but i think that's where they might have to be creative as to how they splice this up so to speak not everyone will want to go with it i accept that but for me it just seems a logical pathway you were Director of Communications for the England team. That's how you, how you got into into the England setup. Um, ju- just look back on that experience and how did it change over the period of time that you're in that role? I'm talking about the media, their approach to the England team, yeah. your approach to communications, social media, so much at play over that period of time. Yeah, I mean, the, the landscape changed dramatically. So I joined the FA from being a press officer with Middlesbrough in the late, in 1997, I joined the FA. Um I went my first World Cup in 98 in France when Glenn Hoddle was the manager and obviously worked through all the way to World Cup 2014. When we went to France, we didn't really have websites operating at the way that they they, they did within a two or three year period after that. I don't even think the FA had its own website then, if I'm not mistaken. We didn't have 24-hour rolling news. Sky Sports News was launched soon after that World Cup. And we didn't have digital phones everywhere. We didn't have anything to do with social media. So it was very focused on traditional platforms of written press, radio, TV. I love news. I love media. And it's important for me to see those traditional media outlets all still being there and being central to covering football. But if you then move that forward to, say, 2010, I think, that was the Twitter World Cup. That was the first time that you saw people, you know, breaking embargoes and going and tweeting something out, which, you know, was a, was a big culture shock for a lot of people, people who maybe were Sunday newspaper journalists who only covered for Sunday newspapers and nothing else. They, they might have a briefing on a Thursday, and unfortunately for them, even though they've been in a private room just for the Sunday papers, one of their ranks who may then go outside and tweet the top line out. And that just started changing the dynamic. And we see you know, the, the, the power that the players have now in a good way that they can communicate directly with the public. You know, if you go back in time when there was a lot of tension around at certain moments... There was no real outlet for the players. They couldn't really explain their own position for good and bad at different times. Look, I had a great journey with England and the 
the FA. And I, I loved working with the media, not every single minute of every day, because we had our moments. And we had some really difficult stories to deal with, both insofar as managers and the stick they took or certain incidents or issues over time. And, of course, the private life side of it for um, some people like Svenjor and Ericsson, as an example. But I always tried to work with the with the journalists and have a good working rapport with them and relationship. And, you know, it, it, that, that morphed into friendship with a lot of people as well. And I think you that there are times where stories would break and I would get my card marked by people and it would allow me to try and prepare as well for the organisation. I love what the England team have done in the last 18 months, two years under Gareth Southgate. You know, the way that they set about going to the World Cup in Russia, the way they were open and the way they communicated in Russia was absolutely wonderful. I would add, it wasn't the case that we didn't ever want to do that with England or didn't try to do that with England in days gone by. You know, people like Joanne Budd, who worked with me for many years at the the FA, you know, she was in charge of our media operations. The media centres she used to build, the events we had in Portugal and in Sardinia as examples before we went off to major tournaments where the whole squads were made available. We did do elements of it, but I think the difference this time is that in Gareth Southgate, England have got a manager who really gets it himself and wants to do it. So that as a, as a collaborative effort with the PR team that are at the FA, it's your dream to work with a manager who wants to do that. And I think we've seen the benefit, the engagement. There was a wave of support for that England team going out to the World Cup. And there always is support going out for the team. But it was a genuine feel-good approach and the media was so supportive of them and when I say the media I'm talking right across all of the different areas of the media. So much of this to my mind seems to be down to personality the personality of the media as a whole the personality of the communication team and the personality of the actors i.e the players and the manager how did the personalities required change among the communications team in your in your period of time because over that period of time, the newspapers, who we could say were the more, the more aggressive, the most aggressive of, of the media, uh, gradually, you could argue, their power weakened because there was more media, more social media, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, look, there's, I don't think there's any uh, any doubt that, well, in my opinion, I don't think the media are anywhere near as um, aggressive and sensational as perhaps they were, um, I would say, pre-Leveson. And so if you go back to the, the middle part and the early part of the last decade and the, and, and the mid-late 90s, people before me will tell me it was like that at different points prior to that as well when there was the, the tabloid war between the Sun and the Mirror and their proprietors. Um, we had players who didn't really have any particular um, media training. And I don't mean training to have, it, have personality trained out of them, but they... The, the, the media kind of just ballooned in size over a very short period of time. You know, the, when I first arrived, you know, the, there was this number one's press briefing, which was literally the chief football or chief sports writer, whoever was decided upon, would see the England manager after a game. We ended up at some point having three from each newspaper in this particular briefing because they had so many big hitting good journalists. 
the players themselves, I think, have become way more um, prepared for how to deal with the media now. They know it's part of their job. When I first worked at Middlesbrough in the mid-90s, you know, a, a really fair question for someone to speak after a game could be met with, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not doing it. And that might well just be, okay, that's, that's how it is. Everybody in the main now understands or should understand that you have a responsibility because you're not just speaking to the journalist in front of you, you're speaking to your fans. You're speaking to the community and the media outlets are pumping millions and billions of pounds into this area of work. So, you know, it's a two-way thing. And I just, I just feel there's a much, um, there's a good level of responsibility and a healthy respect there, um, which has improved in my opinion. But it wasn't all, I hate to say that in a way that it looks like it was always bad. We had so many good moments of dealing with the media, so many good events. We we were putting players up in different types of formats all the way through my England time. And we tried to be creative. And that was at a time, where, if I'm being honest with you, and say the, the, the middle part of the last decade, you know, players often only ever spoke when they were with, when they were with England. They didn't speak when they were with their clubs apart from after a game. When I first went into the FA with the under-21 team, which had the likes of Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard then came in, I kind of really had a big push on trying to generate more crowds for the 21 games, which we were successful at. And part of that was to do more press announcements of fixtures. I spent a lot of time with people like Frank Lampard and Steven Gerrard, preparing them as to what they were going to be asked in a press conference, not to tell them what to say, just so that they were prepared. I remember Stephen, as a really young player, coming to watch Frank Lampard in an under-21 press conference when there was maybe about 15 journalists in the room as a pre-match. And I think they've become accustomed to accepting this is part of their life, they understand it, and that's why we're also seeing some of them are really good broadcasters now, aren't they? I was Senior Director of Communications at the Colorado Rapids, and... The, two of the issues that I had was being on call 24-7, it seems, and also um, trying to remain uncynical when you did get a question that you're there thinking, yeah, we've done this one, or why are you asking me that, or that really doesn't make sense, and trying to handle that in a in a, a non-dismissive way. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Trying to maintain yeah. that level head has become an important part of the Listen, job, I, I think, for a comms guy or a comms person, especially given, as you said, there's so much more media now. Yeah, and I also would say that, you know, it, it was it did feel a different space. There were some huge characters on the... The England football beat, there still are some really big characters, but there were some big, powerful, domineering personalities when I first uh, entered that scene and for the period, um, for the first five or six years when I was still quite uh, young and relatively inexperienced. And, you know, they they, they they were big hitters when you had them on the phone or when you had them in a press conference. But I always just tried to be as helpful as I could with them. Sometimes with, those, with some people, though, you know, we did have some pretty explosive rows as well, um, which that's definitely, from what I see, changed massively, good, um, because I, th- I just think the way that people are now, people are a lot calmer and it's just not an acceptable way of uh, conducting yourself. And I'm talking from me as well as 
what I received as well at that particular time. When I was standing my ground in situations, I would occasionally have a right go at people. Um, I wouldn't dream of adopting that approach now. Um, but I've seen things in press brief, press conferences or more of the informal briefings around tables where you know, I remember one player did a great, I think it was Frank, did a really good piece for the Sundays prior to the the week before, leading into the World Cup quarterfinal with Portugal and Germany. I think I think that's what it was. It might have been the game before. But during the interview, Frank checked himself and said, look, this is what I mean by saying this, whatever point it was he was making. Don't interpret it this way. This is what I mean. Are we all clear on that? And I remember myself saying, you've got that, haven't you? I don't even think I was actually sitting on that interview for me. I was just on in the wings. Just to reassure Frank, as much as anything else, who was blimey, a wonderful media speaker and confident and really bright person. And at the end of it, we stopped again and said, Frank made the point again, you're not going to take that the way that, and oh, absolutely fine, absolutely fine. And the next morning I woke up to an absolute avalanche of, there we are, all of our pages were, or not all of them, but several were of the exact line that we'd talked about it not being, and on the point that Frank was making clear he wasn't saying, which, you know, that the, the amount of work that, that that entails to try and show your own internal people that you're on their side, which is a big thing, um, and people don't always think that you are because you're too close to the press, but you've got to be close to the press if you're going to try and do your job effectively. So it's getting that balance right, and there are so many different problems that, that arise, but you know the bit, the bit about being on call, Richard, you know, I mean, I was on call for over 10 years solid, and the amount of aspects of my life that I missed or were disrupted because of it, that was just part of the job. That's, in the end, one of the reasons why I moved on from being the comms director and ultimately why I moved on from the FA, because... I was actually in need of a break from it, quite frankly. We'll move on to your role as MD in a second. I just want to go back to um, the relationship between the press and the communications team, because at your time with, with England, social media was still growing, still developing. Of course, it, it became a voice for clubs, organisations to correct stories, to um, put things straight. Um, and that perhaps didn't exist when you started at England. So how, in the modern day, how would you use social media to correct a story? Would you would you be on the front foot? Would you use it sparingly? What would you do? Because that's always a the, the way that a club can react to a negative story these days. Yeah, I think it's getting, it's getting the balance right with it. Look, I think social media can be used for so many different purposes and look you see some brilliant creative stuff you know getting into look you want the accuracy from your stories except you know for any stories but i think that if you're having to go on social media on a frequent basis to correct something all of the time you've got something wrong within your own system and your relationship with the journalists i really do believe that um there will be the occasional thing that perhaps needs correcting but I'd prefer to avoid myself or an organization that I was working for to be continually correcting either media outlets or individual journalists on social media. I don't think it's healthy. And I think you can have a much more productive relationship if you were talking to the journalists 
on a regular basis, which is what your job is. You need to get to know those people. You can't know everybody, but you've got to have the dialogue and you've got to be accessible to them. You know, because let's be frank, there are people who work in the industry that aren't always contactable who perhaps should be. And it works too. It works both ways. So I'm not someone that you'll ever get sitting and trying to verbally attack journalists or, or beat them up. They've got a hard job in a hard industry and most of them do it very, very well. There are occasional fallouts and there are occasional corrections that are required. Try to do that as effectively as you can without going to war with people. You moved on to BMD of Team England. What was that role specifically and how did it differ from your comms role? So that was going to kick in after the World Cup in South Africa. And unfortunately, because we lost the chief executive and a chairman in a very short period, I ended up taking on the role that had been offered to me and agreed by Ian Watmore, who I'm really pleased to see who's going, going to the ECB. He's a really good person and a good leader. That role, in effect, was chief executive of the England structure, for want of a better phrase. So I worked into the chief exec of the FA and the chairman of the FA and the board. I wasn't in charge of the technical side. That was Sir Trevor Brooking. And there was a, but Trevor and I enjoyed a really strong working relationship and we, you know, we supported one another and we worked very closely together. So there was never really any problems in that regard. But my, my area was very much the operational side of the England structure, which had 24 teams in it. So there's the budget managing the P&L, all of the logistical travel arrangements, kit, security, performance services for um, at least two or three years of that time, which included obviously the medical, sports science, lots of full-time staff, lots of... Um, itinerant part-time staff as well that we sourced in from various places, including clubs, very good people, stakeholder management, uh, particularly around our events, Co the commercial side liaising with the commercial partners, with the, commer the, the commercial director and the commercial department, but the, my relationship with the likes of Vauxhall um, and Nike, amongst others, was obviously very important. You know, this had never happened before in England or the FA where formulated a meeting that would take place every month. And in that room, you would have the, chair, the chairman of the FA, the chief exec of the FA, the England men's manager, the England women's manager, the England under 21 manager, the direct, the technical lead person, as in Trevor, Dan when he came, Dan Ashworth, Ray Clements as head of national teams would be in there, Michelle Farah, who was our operations director, would be in there. We had the commercial director, we had the head of legal all around the table, and it was the way that we then plotted out anything that needed to be discussed in one place rather than having disparate conversations and meetings going on. That's how we agreed our fixtures and signed them off for all our teams, any tours, um, anything to do with commercial sign-off, kit sign-off, disciplinary matters might have been put into a subgroup of that group, but... In the main, that was the forum for England, and then we had all the people that worked from that group, and my role was to sit at the top of that. It's unusual to see a head of comms move into such a leadership role, isn't it? Normally it's uh, it's the accountants and the lawyers, isn't it, who takes roles like that within football clubs? Yeah, there is, there is a, a strong leaning towards 
either commercial people who revenue generate revenue, um, lawyers with their legal background, and the accountants um, who tend to be the senior figures at clubs and across federations as well. You get some marketeers who take on the role as well, but it is very rare for a communications person to uh, take a leadership role within a lot of these organisations. Um, whether that's because communications people are happy being comms people or whether they're not regarded as being capable with their skill set, that's for the people to answer. I always had aspirations to move on beyond just being comms. Comms is a passion and that will never uh, wane. But I want, you know, I, I sat in a lot of, I'd been in the executive management team for something like six years when I got the MD role. So I'd, I'd been involved in the conversations about everything to do with the business. You know, so while not being an expert in a lot of those areas, but nor are the individuals from some of those professional backgrounds that we talk about. It's about can you apply yourself across the piece? That's the leadership role. You know, and since then I've been involved in various other positions where, you know, as a consultant, I was, you know, I've been approached to be a CEO at a club. I've worked as a, as a CEO in effect on a part-time basis for, for an owner of a club for a short period when I was consulting as well. And I enjoy that challenge. And, you know, I think you're testing yourself. You're trying to develop yourself all the time. And, you know, I, I kind of wish I could go back to 2010 now with what I know now and apply it then because my leadership capability compared to then is a it's, it's a different world. You know, I, I think you, you, I am someone who is always very self-reflective. I certainly know when I've made a poor judgment call and I'm, I'm very quick to self-analyze and self-criticize in that regard and try to ensure I don't do that again. And as you get more experienced, I think you've, you've, you've got to draw on that experience and use it positively within your working environment. Do you think with this current crisis and the potential, I'll use the word again, reframing of football clubs or, or d different emphasis on, on football clubs as, as, as more community assets, particularly in the EFL, there might be more possibilities for... Communications experts, community experts, to be on that top table within football clubs. I think I think in, in some clubs they already are. You know, there are different people who are. You know, I don't know the exact makeup of every management team and who sits around, whether it be a boardroom table or whether it be the leadership room team table. And in different clubs, you can see, you know, comms people. Um, you, you know who the comms person is at a club, but are they actually? sitting at the very top table, I think it changes. But you look at someone like Paul Tyrrell, who's you know had a very long and successful career as a communications person, but he's at Aston Villa now, and I believe he's chief operating officer or a similar type of capacity. Um, you know, So Paul's crossed that great divide from comms into leadership and shown that it can be done. And so uh, whether, the, whether the current crisis leads to more people from communications being at the top table. I honestly don't I don't know, but I think what what I do know is that the role of the communications person is as important as ever at the moment. And you have if you're gonna have a communications person, I would I would always advocate them being on the senior leadership team because they're running right across the business. So they need to know 
But if you're not having them in that leadership team, the one thing you've got to do is make sure they're kept up to speed with things that may be happening behind the scenes so that they can prepare accordingly for it to be proactive or also to be better prepared reactively if something comes from left field. Tell me about your time at Wales. How was that different to England and what did you take from England and uh, and use with Wales? Because it yeah. was at the Euros, right? Uh, I, I loved working with the Welsh FA, I've got to be honest with you. That was probably my favourite bit of work. I was asked by Jonathan Ford to help them as a consultant and I did so for about a year. And it was, in effect, tournament advisor because they didn't have any even though they had really good people around the table, they didn't have any direct experience of major tournaments. So I went in and, look, from from day one, they were, it was a small, hard-working, tight-knit group of people who were so committed, but they were very welcoming. I was really conscious that I wasn't going into that room to tell them, we, we are England, so you should be doing this, because quite frankly, we are England, and we should be doing this. We hadn't got past the quarterfinal. So... Um, the one thing I didn't want to be doing was trying to be telling people how to suck eggs. What I wanted to do was look at methods that could be applied. You know, Jonathan worked in Coca-Cola. He, there was people with good experience around the table, but just not torn experience. So it was the nuances that you, you know, that you wouldn't be aware of, you know, once you've been in the drawer and the hotels that you've got your base camp to choose, you've got your training ground to choose, you've got your hotels that you're given by UEFA that you use the night before, your game, which you don't have any choice in, you know, how do you turn them around to make them as as good as they can before you? Because they're not always fantastic hotels that you get the night before the game, unfortunately. Um, you know, your travel arrangements, what you're doing with your kit, you know, what plane company you're using, what does the planning grid look like from, you know, from nine months out or six months out on a day-to-day basis all the way through at the end of the tournament, building a media centre, are you building one purpose built or are you hiring in a you know a marquee or are you converting a, a school or a sports hall facility? Various elements that um, you know I'd experienced myself and you know that uh, so I went and I, I worked with them probably two maybe a day a week or do a couple of days in the office and then see them again two weeks later. But I just really enjoyed it and they were so welcoming and uh, I was I was it was just a journey, great journey. When I wasn't with the team, although I did, you know, a fair bit with Chris and Oshin and Kit when he came in, um, and Chris was really kind. And Chris invited me when they played Belgium that famous game. He asked me if I would make sure I'd come to the game, so I went that game and went back to the hotel and celebrated with them in the hotel that night. They were on soft drinks, I might add, but um, it was a very euphoric feeling. And it's the first time I'd ever reached a semi-final with the team I was involved in, so. Very unique circumstances for me. Is there, I, well, I certainly found there's a weight of expectation with an England or with an Arsenal and with a, a smaller, no disrespect, but with a smaller a country or club who's on, who's there for the first time, everything's a bonus. It's it's just lighter, isn't it? It just feels it was, nice. it, You're absolutely right. And it was very different in that regard. And, you know, you, you compared that to, say, going to... Some of the World Cups I went to with England, Germany 2006, where, you know, you could argue rightly, but we couldn't breathe, in my opinion, because of the expectation. Going to South Africa and Brazil with two teams that 
maybe weren't as good as the teams from about five years earlier. And but still the pressure and expectation and the you know the the hype and then the criticism around everything is so intense. Whereas it did feel a lot lighter with Wales. Um, it felt more enjoyable. And and to be fair, again, just crossing back to England again for a minute, because I think that's what Gareth has done. He's try you know, he's 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 not copied Wales, but they've definitely taken a lot on board to try and release that burden of pressure to release the tension that the press conferences used to place on the players and the, their concern about getting criticised in the media. You know, that I think that's been reduced massively. And if you can take away some of the, the, the pressure, you're going to give the players freedom. And I thought Wales played with freedom at Euro 2016. I thought England, I think England over the last few years have played with a, a joy they haven't won every game, but they look like they're enjoying the experience of wearing the England shirt. And one of my biggest regrets in my life is that um, I just don't think, for all the work that went on, great people. Like I've mentioned Joanne Bird. You've got people like you've mentioned, you know, Gary Lewin, who's been around for a long time. Michelle Farrow, who'd been there for uh, you know so many years. Brilliant organizer, dedicated people around that team. I couldn't, I could go on and on. But despite all that work. I don't think it was as joyous an experience for the players as perhaps it could have been or should have been. I think it looks less pressured now. And if that is the case, they've got more chance of achieving success. When you've got someone like Gareth Southgate in charge, who, you know, I, I've never met him, but he just seems like a good guy. I mean, how do you create the communication of that outwards, because it's a hugely positive thing when you've got a leader like that to, 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 to change things and to change the whole atmosphere around the country and the, and the tournament, which he's done. But you've got to extrapolate that. You've got to get that out there. How do you well, do well, you first, you've got the issue of that they built the England DNA, which, you know, there were some raised eyebrows when that was first launched. That was Matt Crocker who's now going to Southampton with Dan Ashworth, people like Dave Redding, who was there, and Dave's like an unbelievable uh, visionary for organisation of performance, um, real expert in that regard. Gareth is a leader, and anyone who spends any time with Gareth will realise immediately that he's just got great values. He's inspiring in a quiet way. He's got a great sense of humour that people don't always see, but... He's a he's very light touch in that regard, but his standards are impeccable. I think he's just took that job. He he will respect every single person that he works with internally, and he will allow them to have their voice. I spent time with him when he was with the under twenty ones, and he was superb with the staff. But he also externally communicates brilliantly. He's just a natural communicator. He's not frightened of communication. He is not going into an interview or a communication environment looking for a fight or seeing a problem that may not be there. So that immediately just knocks down the barriers. And he, he clearly is prepared because he will prepare for every element of his job. But he just is the right fit to be the England manager. He gets it. When, when the FA were trying to change the rules to... On, on small-sided football, which was quite a hot political issue within the county FAs. 
Gareth was in his initial role within the FA before I got the 21s job. You know, and I remember going to, I think it was Chelmsford Town Hall on a Thursday night, and there's Gareth Southgate sat on a on a stool talking to the county people and people who from grassroots clubs and communicating why. You know, he did that all around the country. He might not have been him at Chelmsford, but he, he went all around the country and did this. And you've got to have a commitment and be of the right mindset to, to, to do that. And I think, look, they've got some very good communications people at the FA. You know, they're talented people and they've got the right attitude there. But having Gareth Southgate is the icing on the cake because if you have someone who is not good at it, you can have the best prep in the world and it can still not shine. Gareth makes it work and he deals with big issues and he is front of house for that organisation and they are so, so fortunate to have a leader of that quality. You spoke about values at the start of that. That's really interesting. I mean, in the last 10 years, football clubs have talked much more about their values. If you were advising a, any sporting organisation now, what would you say vis-à-vis creating values and articulating values? Because if you articulate them and then you don't live up to them, they become a stick with which to beat you, right? Well, first of all, values are not just words. Values are what you live. And I spent quite a lot of time at the FA and with other organisations where we've you know, had sessions to try and determine what the values of the organization are before you then go externally on it. I think it's really important that the values that you decide upon are achieved by not just your leadership team. It's got to be some kind of combination of all your workforce because you're asking these people to buy into them and live by them. That that will define it. And if it's in a football club, the football players have got to be part of that discussion in some shape or form as well. But you've got to understand what your club means or what your organisation means. And within that, there's got to be real empathy for your supporters. You know, it's, it's no good putting a set of values together that actually don't relate to your supporters. Otherwise, they just look like stupid buzzwords. So different clubs stand for different things. We all, we all, we can name different clubs. And we think, ah, yeah, but they're, you know, they're, they'll always have a team that's a hard-running team. They work hard. They're from an area that is a, you know, more of a, industrial area that, that, that you know you look at Atletico Madrid for example and you'd never have you wouldn't say Atletico Madrid have the same so all the same values as Real Madrid in the way that they you know the, the, the work ethic of that club I'm not saying Real Madrid don't work either but just the obvious work ethic of that club it's there to be seen you know they're they're the poor they're the poor club compared to Real Madrid and that's you know that that's a really broad line example but I think getting your values right are things that then Every day, any member of the organisation, when they walk into the in their office or their workplace, whether it be the groundsman, whether it be the person who sits at the accounts department, whether it be you know the, the people who work in the, the staff canteen, they've got to know what their purpose is, why they're there, and what the values of the club or the organisation are, and that it cares, and that it tries to do things properly. It tries to achieve to the highest standard possible and you've got to have objectives you know you've got to it's, it's no good setting pie in the sky objectives that you're never going to achieve but you should be put you should be putting stretch targets in place otherwise you'll never achieve anything otherwise why do olympians set set themselves 
um, you know, I'm going to try and win the gold within eight years' time. You've got to have something that you're targeting. It's got to be tangible. And you support, you, you should be transparent with your supporters and your communication of it in what you're trying to achieve, what your purpose is. It's the same as when you appoint a manager or a head coach. You should be sitting down with them and saying what you really expect from them so that there's no surprises, you know, to them. If they're underperforming at a certain point, you're within your rights then to say, look, this is what we were expecting of you and you signed up to this. Or, or just the way that people conduct themselves when they're representing the club. I'm really passionate about this area, and I think there's so much that can be done to improve a lot of organisations in this way. And in this new world that we're going to enter post-coronavirus, it's a brilliant opportunity for people to reset, which goes back to the point you make, reset, get their values right, make sure they're at the heart of the community, that they're acting properly, and that people are truly living the values that they are setting themselves from the outset. Because, as you say, it's particularly important now because there are going to be opportunities in this post-coronavirus world within football uh, for bad agents to buy distressed assets. Uh, 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 there'll be lots of opportunities which may not... Um, be to the benefit of supporters or football as a whole. So it's important that, that football retains its values. But I think it's where you, it's also where you see the leaders need to be true leaders. So you go back to Southgate as an individual. He is a leader. It's very obvious. You also want your leaders of your governing bodies, of your of your leagues, of your clubs to to be visible, to communicate well, and to show their value internally and externally. Do you think at the moment we're in a position where we can reframe this issue over over values? I know you've spoken about this, but there's always a tension between values, transparency and success sometimes. That, that, that sometimes clubs are very short-term, think about success and, and they forget their values in order to get success because they think that's the most important thing. Well, you're also driven there as well, of course, in the main, most supporters want success as quickly as possible uh, too. Yeah, and supporters call for it, and that's part of the pressure. That's part of the pressure. So I think it's it's about understanding what you're trying to achieve, being realistic about it, um, and I don't mean being, um, you know, not setting yourself good, clear, stretch targets, but your values are something that should be there, whether you're winning or losing, quite frankly. They're about your behaviours, you know, your behaviours feed, you know, your values feed your behaviours, and uh, you can, I think you, you put plans in place and sometimes they won't work on the field or some things on the business side might not work, but you can still have those core values that you are what your organisation stands for. And you, your role within the community should not change whether you're winning or losing, quite frankly. And just lastly, talking about this post-coronavirus world, what would be your key pieces of advice for any football organisation? Communicate effectively. Be very clear in how you're communicating. As, as transparent as one can be with the with the communication. I think people are going to be looking at every organisation, not just sport, to be a caring organisation. That is what is that is the, the the way forward here. And your your corporate and cultural behaviour um, needs to be attuned to that moving forward. Adrian Beverton, thank you very much. 
My pleasure. You can find Sports Content Strategy on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Go to sportscontentstrategy.com for more information and to sign up to the newsletter. Richard is at Mr. Richard Clark on all social media. Read his blog at mrrichardclark.com. Thank you.